Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Hey, my first guest is a true renaissance man. He's a chef, an entrepreneur, a TV host, and fitness personality who believes in changing the world through service. So Michael Chernow is the co-founder of The Meatball Shop. And I'm telling you, I've been to this shop and love to order takeout. I mean, they've got naked balls, okay? Hey, he's also the founder of Well Well and Seymour's, and his mission is to create opportunities for wealth and happiness for his community. Chef Michael Chernow, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. It, it's good. So I would just ask you right before the break, are you open? Is, is the, it, you know, are you open for business or is it just takeout? What is it? Well, uh, you know, we obviously, I, so I, I co-founded the Meatball Shop and founded a, another brand called Seymour's. We've got uh, 11 restaurants in the city. Um, and as soon as COVID sort of became, a, uh, you know, like a real, a real threat, uh, we all got on the horn and uh, Meatball Shop has been open straight through uh, for takeout and delivery because Meatball Shop does, you know, a fair amount of business uh, just in general in takeout and delivery. Yeah. However, Seymour's, we decided to shut down uh, pretty much immediately because, you know, it's a seafood joint. And uh, though we'd love to be open, you know, people aren't aren't ordering seafood on a regular basis for, for delivery. So we decided to preserve the cash that we had in the bank and not end up, you know, spending more than we would be able to potentially make. So we've shut down Seymour's for the, you know, for the term of this COVID thing. And uh, slowly but surely, hopefully, you know, as things unfold in the city, we'll be able to get open. But, uh, you know, this is a big old waiting game right now. It's pretty, it's pretty uh, intense. It's the worst waiting game we've ever had to play, quite frankly, for all of us. I mean, you, you, you can't make a right decision, you know, you can't make a somewhat a wrong decision because you really don't know which way to go. So, you know, the restaurant industry has been hit hard. I mean, how are you guys doing, Michael? You feel you feel good in the position you're in? You feel you know down about it? I mean, how do you feel? You know, I, I, I will say that uh, at first, obviously, it sent shivers down all of our spines. Uh, you know, we had to between both companies, we had to lay off, you know, hundreds of people, five, 600 people. Um, and, uh, and so that was devastating just as a, as a business owner, as an entrepreneur and a business owner, you know, having it to make sucks. it just sucks. Um, and, uh, but you know, the beauty of, of, of what, what's happened is, is that everybody's been able to really, you know, get their, their unemployment insurance and, uh, and everybody's sort of making, making money. So it's not like people are, are, uh, are really, um, are, are, are totally struggling, although we're all sort of struggling, but, um, you know, I, I think uh, we're, we're staying positive. You know, luckily, Meatball Shop and Seymour's are both community-driven restaurants. We're really sort of the local joints. We're in a bunch of different neighborhoods all throughout New York City. And so the community has been supporting us. Even though Seymour's has been closed, people have been supporting us. Um, and we've got funds for both restaurants. Uh, Meatball Shop did something really amazing where we created a, a, a little uh, initiative called Heroes for Heroes. And so people have been donating for that. We've been... We've been bringing meatball heroes to uh, frontline workers at hospitals all over the city every day. Um, so we're just trying to stay positive. We know that, you know, we're not unique. Uh, everybody's going through this together. So, you know, we're just going to try to try to 
sort of stand strong and, and, and hold our ground and, and, and hope to gosh that, uh, you know, things turn around relatively soon. So let me ask you a question. I mean, how fast do you think the restaurant industry is going to snap back? Uh, you know, I think in T1 markets like New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, uh, Austin, you know, maybe South Florida, I think, um, it's going to take time. I think, uh, you know, you're not dealing with a lot of outdoor space. You're not given any, you know, you don't have tons of outdoor seating. Um, and so, you know, and that's, I think the restaurants with, with the ability to really sort of like, you know, have outdoor seating, those restaurants are gonna, are going to see a, a faster uptick than, than restaurants in sort of crowded markets like New York and LA. Um, but, you know, look, I, I'm, I, I don't think it's viable for restaurants to open up in, in, in you know, major markets uh, at a 25% capacity, at a 50% capacity. The numbers just don't make sense. You know, you can't, you can't make it work. Yeah. It just, you can't make it work because it's yeah. not like you can hire staff uh, at 50%. You know what I mean? You, when yeah. you bring somebody back on, you, you bring them back on. So I think, you know, it's one of those things where, it's going to be, you know, Danny Meyer made a very clear statement. Danny Meyer said, you know, we're not opening up our restaurants until there's a vaccine. And, you know, Danny Meyer sets the bar a lot of the time. You know, he comes out with a, with a statement that he believes is going to influence the whole, the industry as a whole. So when he says something like that, it's really difficult for guys like me who followed his sort of path and journey um, to, to, to try to do something that he highly recommends not doing, you know. Well, he's a smart guy and you got to pay attention to that. I mean, especially when you look in New York or say San Francisco, Miami, wherever, where the rents are pretty high. I mean, if you you don't have that turn, you're not turning those tables two, three times a night. You got a tough, tough go. Do you think it's going to change the restaurant? I, could, I had a discussion with someone who owns a restaurant. I said, man, why don't you open up in an industrial area? You're a great chef and really get known word of mouth and, and, and deliver an experience to the house rather, or have a takeout like you've got with the meatball shop where most, you know, you don't have a lot of, a lot of seating there anyway. You know, it's really right. kind of go get, pick up my, my bag of meatballs and go home kind of place. And do you yeah. think you're going to see more of that in the, in the restaurant space as opposed to indoor seating and limited capacity? Absolutely. And, yeah. 100%. You know, if you don't have it, if you're, if you're, if your product does not travel well, well then you better make a menu uh, uh, of something within your concept that can travel well, because I do believe for the next year, 18 months, uh, you know, takeout and delivery is definitely going to be, uh, you know, something that people are going to be doing more so than ever before. And if you're in development for a new restaurant or a new food concept, uh, you know, you better make sure that delivery and takeout is is a, is a massive component of what you're put, trying to put out there, because though people are, are, quote unquote, sick and tired of being at home, you know, I think people are going to have a hard time being packed into a restaurant. Uh, yeah. And and that is and, and, and in, in, you know, New York, like you said, San Francisco, Miami, you know restaurants tend to be on the smaller side. They're not these like big suburban restaurants where there's tons of space. People pack in like sardines. And uh, on a Friday night, you know, it, it, in order to 
succeed in a, in a, in a market like New York, you, you, you better, you better be packed. You bet people better be bumping into each other. Uh, and so, you know, I think, uh, it's going to be a difficult, it's going to be a difficult uh, journey for the next year. And for the restaurants that can hold on, you know, the PPP is a big thing. Hopefully they figure out and change the, change some of the stipulations on that loan because, Currently, right now, that loan makes no sense for anybody in my industry. Uh, you know, you got to have seventy-five percent of your staff back, and you know, it, it. You know, by June fifteenth or something crazy like that. I know that they've extended it a little bit, twenty-four weeks. But realistically, that loan should be a five or ten-year loan. Um, they've they've done the work of administering that capital, but it's almost impossible for anybody in the industry to actually act like use it. Uh, in the way that it was meant to be used without, without making it a traditional loan. Yeah, it's going to be tough. And you talk about packing them in. And for those of you who haven't been to a restaurant in New York City, listen, with a guy with a big ass like mine, it's hard to get in between the tables because they squeeze them together so tight. So just so yeah. you know, it's a tight thing. Hey, uh, talking about squeezing something in, I need to squeeze in a break. Uh, let's take a break and we'll be right back. C-Suite Radio. Hey, we are back and we're live casting right here on LinkedIn and Facebook as we're bringing you all business with Jeffrey Hazlett right here from C-Suite Radio. C-Suite Radio, the world's largest business podcast network. And we are bringing you our good friend, Michael Chernow. He's a chef. He's an entrepreneur, co-founders of Seymour's, The Meatball Shop, and Well Well. So I read the story about you starting The Meatball Shop after you went digging through the garbage. Tell us that story. Digging through the garbage. That's what I heard. I read that, that you, that you, you got started with the meatball. That's what it said. Wow. I wonder where you read that. But I, you know, I, I will say that, that when we first started the meatball shop, we didn't have a lot of money, Daniel and I, and we didn't have money to, to, you know, bring on designers and, and, and a decor person. So I, uh, I rented a, a truck, a U-Haul truck, and I went up and down the East Coast uh, and and uh, and stopped at all these antique markets and yard sales and yeah. and I was kind of digging through the garbage trying to find things to decorate the restaurant with and design the restaurant with. And then I found out that I became super passionate about design and uh, and so that's how we did the first uh, five restaurants where I would just travel around. I'd fill up a truck, you know, with with antiques, clean them up myself, and that's and and save, you know couple hundred thousand dollars on, on design and decor. Uh, and so okay, that that's was, a lot uh, that sexier might... story. That's a lot of sexier story than digging through the garbage. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Well, yeah I'm, 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 I'm dying to find out what the digging through the garbage story is. <laughs> well, uh, probably from my team's kind of interpretation of it. So, you, you know, when I look at what you're, what you've done, Michael, you've done, you know, Hey, look, being a restaurateur, right. And then being an entrepreneur, both of those are tough to do, dude at the same time, right? Yeah. I mean, I think for me as an, as, as a guy that that's always sort of thought entrepreneurially, I mean, from as early as I can remember, I was always trying to make and do like, those are the yeah. two words that sort of run. It's a common thread throughout my life. And, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not yet 40, but I'm working on it. And, uh, you know, I, I think I've got a long, uh, a long road ahead of me in terms of my, my career. Um, but you know, I don't know anything else. I've always tried to figure out how to, uh, how to create. And what I learned early on in my life was that I love people 
I love the human engagement. I love the human connection. I love making people happy. And so service is just a huge part of my life. And I, and I landed in a, in a restaurant when I was 13 years old. And, uh, and I, and I, and I've haven't had a job in any other industry now, uh, you know, now, uh, whatever, set 27 years later, I've, I've, I've only worked in restaurants and, um, and you know, for me, it is hard work. There's no doubt about it. But it, I love it. I love it so much that you know, you know, the 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 famous saying, you know, if, if you if you if you love it, it doesn't feel like work. And so for right. me, it really doesn't feel like work. I love being at the helm of a team. I love I love creating. I love uh, being able to deliver a product that I believe in that I stand behind. And uh, you know, and that's what I do. Yeah. Do you like better? Do you like working in the kitchen, doing that kind of stuff, or managing the business better? You know, I really, my skill set has, has over, over, you know, the last 12 years that I've been a business owner, um, I'm really good at the creative element. I'm really good at, at coming up with the, the concept, coming up with the brand, team building, putting a team together to, to, to get excited about something, launching it. Um, I'm involved in every aspect of it for the first, you know, three years where I'm running the business. I'm, I'm, I'm working with the kitchen. I'm, 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 you know, I'm training the staff and, and getting people excited. And then once the business is established, I, I look to try to sell some equity so that I can do it again, because I love the creative component of it. I absolutely, that is what drives me. It's the people and the creativity that drive me. And there are incredible people that are much smarter than I am that uh, really love analyzing the numbers and logistics and making sure the P&Ls are sound and make sense. Um, you know, I, I sort of like pedal to the metal for the first three, four years. And then, uh, and then I surround myself with an incredible team that can really sort of take the business from, you know, 10 million to a hundred million. Yeah. So I see some of the things that, uh, that you look that you've got, like, there's a couple of things like you collect tattoos, but you also like uh, vintage boots and watches, sneakers. But what's your favorite watch? Uh, you know, I'll show you, actually. I've yeah. actually got it sitting right here. My favorite watch, this is a watch that I had my eye on for a really long time. Uh, and I and when I opened up my fifth restaurant, I treated myself. I really treated Good. myself. Good for you. And I did, I did that. I sold, I sold one of my businesses and that's when I bought my first really big watch. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was like, Whoa. And then yeah. I did another one and I've done another one. And now, you know, and then you got, I don't know how many watches you got, by the way, I'm just curious. Probably got around eight or 10, something like that. Yeah. See, most but for, for the women that are, what is that one? Oh, there you go. It, yeah. This is my birth year, 1980 Rolex 18 karat gold GMT master two. Yep. That is just my absolute all time pride and joy when it comes to watches. So mine was my, my first one after I, I took a company public for about a billion and I went out and splurged on a, on a, uh, a Rolex black and gold and silver Submariner and yeah. did the same thing. Now my favorite watch of all time right now is a show par with the moon phases. It cost as much as my very first house. And, uh, and that's the, whoa, I mean, whoa, that was like, well, I can tell okay. you what my favorite watch is right now. My Garmin yeah. <laughs> watch right now. This watch yeah. keeps me deck. It tells me yeah. how many steps I take. It tells me how many calories I burn. Uh, and, uh, and this is my beater watch, but I, but I love it. There you go, brother. Well, you got to have that passion. And I think that's good to have. And let's take another break and we'll come right back. C-Suite Radio. 
Hey, we're back and we're live, live casting right here on Facebook and LinkedIn as we're bringing you all business with Jeffrey Hazlett and right here on C-Suite Radio. As you know, we've got over 200 podcast shows and we're adding a new show about every other day as we've become the world's largest business podcast network and we're so excited by the growth. You know, right now we're in this hockey stick of growth. You ever be, we always talk about that in business, hockey stick. You're always in that hockey stick. I've always been the handle. You know, and now we're at the very tip of that hockey stick. It's kind of nice to be able to do that. I'm talking with Michael Chernow. He's a chef. He's an entrepreneur and he's co-founder of Seymour's, the meatball shop in Wellwell. He's out of New York City. And we're talking about, you know, all the different things you've got to do as an entrepreneur right now. And uh, it's not an easy path. And we're excited. Now, you've got a mantra, too. I love I love this. You, you say fail often, fail fast. I always say win fast. That's the biggest thing. But learning from your mistakes, you know, and everybody always asks me, Michael, what's my biggest mistakes I've ever made in business? I always tell them, I don't know. I haven't done it yet. You know, meaning there's always going to be a bigger one in some way. Yeah. So where did that kind of mantra for you come from? Uh, you know, interesting. My, my partner at Seymour's, uh, he, he said that to me uh, early on. And I, I've no- he, he wasn't my partner. When I met him, he was, you know, we, we didn't meet over a partnership. He was a mentor of mine uh, when I was just starting out as, as a restaurant guy. I met him after I opened up my second restaurant. And he and I are very different. He's really uh, sort of like a, a, an analytical guy. Uh, very, very smart. Um, and he said to me, he said, you know, fail off and fail fast. And that for me was... I was like, yeah, you know, I, I, I believe that uh, when you're going, when you're running full speed and you're trying, you're putting everything into it uh, and, and there's a, you know, a stick in your path, sometimes you don't have the time to get out of the way and you, you trip and you fall. You know, I think mm-hmm. that that's, that's, that should be expected. And those are, those are, those are, those are uh, sort of learning experiences for me. I've, I've, I've definitely failed a number of times. Uh, luckily, I haven't had any like massive implosions, but uh, you know, I, I believe that you know when you're when you're doing things and you're working in a hyper competitive dynamic market like New York City, where I'm from and where my businesses are, you got to go full steam ahead constantly. It's, it's there's no room for for you know the uh, the fast walkers, um, and yeah. so uh, you know we fail, and that's okay. I believe it. I believe it's necessary in our in, in my line of work where it's super high risk. Everything is, uh, you know, you got to be able to to pivot, um, you know, and uh, yeah. So why do you why are you winning and other entrepreneurs or other restaurateurs fail? Why why do you why are you winning at such a great rate? I'll give you I'll give you a good I'll give you a, I think I was thinking about this before this guest. I was wondering if you were going to ask me a question like this, and you know, I am a big sports fan. Um, and I'm an athlete and, uh, I always like to make a correlation to, to sports because you think of a team, right? Let's just call it a football team, professional football team, all the time, all the energy, all the training, all the PT, all the capital, all the resources, every single thing goes into the team, the people playing on the field, the team. Not a dollar strategically necessarily goes into the fan. The fans come when the team is awesome. And a lot of the time they come when the team is failing too. But all of the energy goes into the team, period. That is the way these owners and these coaches think. 
team, everything is team. And I have the exact same philosophy where the guest is obviously very, very important, incredibly important, and I love my guests. However, they don't come anywhere close to how passionate I am about making sure that the team is supported, trained well, feeling like they're sharpening their skills on a regular basis, feeling like they're actually cared for. And, um, and, and, that, and, and I think that a lot of business owners potentially forget that, that it, it is really, you are as strong as your worst player. And if your worst player sucks, I hate to tell you, you fucking suck. And that's just the truth. That's, that's true. That is, it's the bottom line, right? Like yeah. what in my industry, you know, people always say, why is the restaurant business so tough? Well, I try to explain it to them like this. You walk into a retail store, let's just call it a hardware store. You walk into a hardware store and you got to go buy a couple of tools that are going to cost you 60 bucks. So you walk in, no one says hello to you. No one like walks up to you in the aisle and says, can I help you? You're like, you've got to go ask somebody for help if you want to find the thing, if you don't know where it is. You have one interaction with somebody at the cash register most of the time. That $60, you interacted with one person. In my business, for a $60 transaction, you've got a host that greets you at the door. You've got two managers, one in the front of the house, one in the back of the house. You've got five servers on the floor. You've got two bartenders. You've got five cooks in the kitchen. You've got three busboys. You've got two dishwashers. You've got three prep cooks. That's 17 people for a, $17, for a $60 transaction. That's why the restaurant business is so hard. It is like you have to perfect a 60-minute, if your turn time is 60 minutes, 70 minutes, it's got to be perfect or as close to perfect as possible. And like I said, you are as strong as your worst player. And if somebody, if, if, if your worst player is taking care of a table or a guest and it's a bad experience, it spreads like wildfire. Yeah, you're not going to get them back. You, you're only yeah. as good as the weakest link, right? And that's yeah. the name of the game. And, uh, and that's a tough business. What, let me ask you, hey, by the way, which, which, what's the most popular dish at the meatball shop? Most popular dish at the meatball shop consistently for years is uh, beef meatballs with tomato sauce. It's just, you know, it's the classic classic, man. It's like, yeah. we, have, we have, so when we, when we came up with the concept, we were, you know, it was a bunch of different kinds of meatballs that we were just serving in a bowl with a sauce of your choice. So you choose your meatball, you choose your sauce, and yeah. we call those naked balls. Yeah. And so they basically come out just in a bowl with sauce. You can, yeah. you can have them with heroes, you know, you can have them on a hero, on a sandwich, over pasta, but really... People tend to come to the meatball shop. They order a bunch of different kinds of meatballs and different types of sauces, and they get them in a bowl. And uh, so the the the, uh, the the beef meatballs, tomato sauce, consistently on a daily basis are the all time winners. What's your favorite one to cook or eat? I love the chicken meatballs best. Really, chicken meatballs are, are my absolute favorite. I love them. I love them. I mean, the pork meatballs are all. I mean. I've, I've probably eaten way too many beef meatballs to call them my favorite just because I've, I've, yeah. pro I've, I've probably eaten more beef meatballs than anybody in history. Uh, the pork meatballs are a treat for me. On a consistent basis, though, I eat the chicken meatballs. You like lamb meatballs? What about lamb? That was the first special meatball that we did. It was the Mediterranean yeah. lamb meatball, and it's yeah. delicious. You yeah, I like the meatball shop cookbook. The meatball shop cookbook is an awesome cookbook. It's, it's, it's totally simplified the idea of making meatballs. And, uh, we've got 30 meatball recipes in there and a bunch of sides. Great book. 
I'm going to get it. Good plug. A good plug. And a good luck with the podcast, too. Good to see you. We're going to see about getting you on our podcast. We're going to get your podcast over on our network. Let's, we're gonna, I'm going to call you back. We're going to talk to you. Maybe we can get you to do that. We'd love to have I'd it. Love that. I'd love that. Born or Made. That's his podcast. Talking with Michael Chernow, the chef, entrepreneur, co-founder of Seymour's and the Meatball Shop. And well, well, didn't even get a chance to even talk about that. We'll have to bring him back. Hey, Michael, thanks for joining us right here on All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. Hey, at the end of every show, I like to talk about what I've learned. But before that, stick around. I'm, you're going to want to listen to this next segment all about the economy, recession, recovery. What do we've got going? My next guest is going to be coming on and we're going to be talking and we're going to ask her some really hard questions. Okay. Now, what did I learn from Chef Michael and the meatball shop and Wellwell and Seymour's? I'll tell you what I learned. And I thought it was really cool. He said two things I thought were good. One is in the restaurant business, don't order to succeed going forward. You're going to have to have foods that travel well. That's not something I would have normally would have thought. What do you mean by that? Travel well, which means they get their great takeout and they get to get home, sit on the counter for 15, 20 minutes for maybe heat them up again. So you're going to need a product to be able to, to fit the environment you're selling into. And I thought that was a really great takeaway. How many of us have a travel well product that now fits into the new environment? You know, I've always said adapt, change or die. And that's what I learned right here on all Business with Jeffrey Hazlett right here on C-Suite Radio. Don't forget, tell your friends. My next guest is all about creating a revolution, a research revolution, and all about the economy. And it's Danielle DiMartino Booth. She's the CEO and chief strategist of Quill Intelligence, and she thinks the Fed is bad for America. She spent nine years at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, where she served as an advisor to President Richard Fisher until his retirement. Now, with COVID wrecking havoc on the economy, what can the Fed do to prevent another financial catastrophe? She's going to talk about that, and we get into it. And we actually, I ask her, do you think this is going to help or hurt Trump? Okay, so let's think about this. How will the markets react in the next year? Well, Danielle is here to tell us. Danielle, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. It's great to be here. It's good to see you again. Absolutely. It's been a long time. It has been. So tell me about this research hashtag. Let's just say it. Hashtag research revolution. What does that mean? Uh, that means that we defy the conventional. We, we try and go where most other big Wall Street firms and, 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 and investment managers, we try and look at research through much different prisms. We're all about getting down into the weeds to see what's happening in the microeconomy that tells us what's happening, therefore, in the macroeconomy. So Again, this is a whole revolution, and we've got a kind of a cult following now, and it's been great. It's been a great two years since we found at Quill Intelligence. Yeah, you know, we got 40, what is it, I think this morning was 42 million people out of work, uh, one in five working Americans. I mean, it's amazing to see that. You know, I, I was talking to somebody on my team. I said, you know, with the people we've got, just imagine one out of five of you is gone. Look around. What, what does that mean? You know, what do you what do you mean when you say that the Fed is bad for America? Well, you know, uh, look, the Fed has been uh, has been injecting liquidity into the system for so many years. Uh, we forget uh, that, that the Fed was already growing its balance sheet in 2019 in December 2019 
liquidity that the Fed was injecting into the system was the highest since 1969. And mm-hmm. what that created along the way was a doubling in the size of the corporate bond market. So now we're seeing, whereas in the going into the last crisis, we had an overabundance of debt in the household sector. Today, we've got an overabundance of debt in the non-financial business sector. So, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, and, and since the COVID crisis has come, boy, Fed policy is absolutely on steroids. So right yeah. now they're in the process of keeping a lot of businesses that would otherwise not be with us any longer, be downgraded, go file chapter 11. They've wrenched the junk bond market open. So they're keeping what we call zombie firms alive by giving them lifelines of liquidity. Uh, it, so it, it, it's these are the things that create really slow growing recoveries, which is exactly what we have seen for the past 12 years. It's that we were definitely in recovery, but we weren't exactly going gangbusters. And that's what happens if you keep a bunch of firms alive that are taking up room that could be that could be replaced by innovative, entrepreneurial, super job creating, super productive new entrants. Yeah. Well, it's artificially keeping people alive. It's like, and, uh, you know, I, I hate to say it because I love all of free enterprise. I love all businesses, as many as we can, but I like good businesses and great businesses and some businesses should die, you know, it's, and, part, of, you it's, know, it's part of the business cycle. It is what it is. Yeah. And, you know, with COVID, everybody, all the, a lot of businesses that were poor to begin with, we were given lifelines and given PPPs and, and yeah, again, artificially, you know, propped up in a way that they shouldn't have been propped up because they never had a chance to begin in the first place. Right. So now we have really surprisingly great, robust, strong job numbers come out. Uh, But at the same time, you're seeing continued hesitancy among U.S. consumers because a lot of them know that whether it's the Paycheck Protection Program or whether it's a a, a junk bond that, that Carnival Cruise Lines has just sold into the market, they know that the company that they're working for is not that healthy. So they're still concerned about once the stimulus uh, tapers away, are they going to have a job on the other side of it? So as long as you have that reluctance, that reticence among consumers, we're not going to see strong economic growth coming out of this reopening. But not everybody took PPP. Not a lot of business. I My business did not. I don't like the restrictions. I don't like what they're going to do. Uh, right. You know, could I, if I could have really, man, it should, it does like, this is going to be grant money. This is going to be good. I could get this, but at the same time, I don't need all that other stuff. You think, what would you do in your business? Would you take it or not take it? No, we, we, we examined it initially and we said, why do it? Uh, We, you know, we are a, we're a lot of companies in America today have contract workers, 1099 instead of W2. That's the case with our company. It made absolutely no sense to take the PPP loan, and we didn't. And you know, knock on wood, we're fine for it, uh, mainly because so many of the things that we've been predicting and, and looking at in our research have come to fruition on the other side of this. And that, again, is what we've been. You know, it, it, it's called the, the you know it's called the COVID recession. I beg to differ because so much debt had built up into the system that it was an accident waiting to happen. Whatever the catalyst might have been, it was coming anyway. I mean, we all knew there was going to be a correction in the market. We were waiting. We were waiting. I, I said it was actually going to come in May of this year. I said, it's going to hit before the election. My gut was that's when it was going to hit. Now, COVID, I think, accelerated. But I still think we were going to see it anyway. 
Well, and we've seen a rip-roaring recovery, but we have to remember that other years in history where we've seen similar types of rebounds have been followed by not such good eras in the stock market. 1933, 1968 are great examples of massive, enormous recoveries off the bottom in stocks, followed by years of very poor returns. Because again, if you if you artificially, to use your word, prop up the economy, then what you have on the other side is not going to look so good. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick break. I need to prop up my business with, a, with an advertisement. So let's take a break. We'll be right back. C-Suite Radio. Hey, and we are back. Thanks so much for listening in and watching us live right here as we do a live cast on LinkedIn and Facebook as we bring you. Uh, it's just great information. I got Danielle DiMartino Booth. She's the CEO and Chief Strategist for Quill Intelligence. And we're talking all about, you know, are we headed to recession? Not. Where are we at financially? All those kind of things right here on All Business with Jeffrey Hazel on C-Suite Radio. So, where, you know, Danielle, where does the country set financially right now? Are we headed for a recession? Well, I think without a doubt, we are in recession. Uh, the, yeah, question I think is, are. the question is, what happens now? Is it going to be a shallow recession? Are we going to come out of it quickly? Um, is, is, is it just a matter of flipping the switches and reopening the economy? Or is there going to be something that follows it that's going to keep us in a slower growth trajectory. And I would argue that because we are starting to see layoffs come in higher income paying jobs, these are, these are not directly reflection. There's not direct reflections of COVID. Uh, these are not leisure and hospitality jobs, restaurants, travel, tourism. We're starting to see investment banks and home builders and uh, in industrial companies. We're starting to see layoffs, again, higher income paying jobs. And this will be the second wave. And I would argue that this is going to be the true determinant of what this recovery looks like, or I should say how long this recession will last. You know, and I always tell people, having been in the corporate world at a Fortune 100 company, that, that don't the, CEO is, the CEOs and the C-suite are not going to let a good crisis go by. So they are locking down the travel. They're locking, you know, locking the door on some facilities or, you know, re, uh, out, outlets or, or uh, places of, of, of business that they can do that, you know, maybe were marginal before. Now, boom, they get to take it and they get to blame it all on COVID and take out levels of executives, you know, oh, quite absolutely. frankly. Yeah. We're, we're, we're going to see quite a few middle managers. And, and, and right now, if, if you're Joe Q, human resources executive, you've got all of your employees on a spreadsheet because they've been working remotely. So you get to be very, uh, you get to be very precise in saying this person's productive in the worst environment. This person's not. We can cut this person. We can keep this one for a heck of a lot less money. Their salary is a lot lower. But look, look at what they've produced during this very strange time. And, and it's also going to accelerate automation in a America, which very few people are talking about. But just to your point, I, I have to I have to validate what you're saying. Just in the past few days, we've seen Lazy Boy shut down an upholstery plant in Miss, in Mississippi. We've seen AK Steel shut down a plant. Um, it was in the northeast eastern corridor. I promise you to your to your what, what you're saying. These were identified long before COVID came okay. along as being yeah, JC Penny, 140 stores. I mean, right. you you're across the board. I, I can't remember there was another one I saw this morning, and I went, oh oh, Pier Pier One closing down entirely. You know, which oh, I was like, 
Yeah. Oh, wow. That's, that's amazing. I also, I was listening to, what do you think that what, what's the job market? Let's talk about that. What do you think it will be the outcome of the job market? I heard someone say that by December, they're predicting that we'll be down to 10% unemployment. What, what do you, what do you think? Is that, is that optimistic? Um, I'm not sure if it's optimistic uh, because we, we do have this kind of quirky 13.3% unemployment rate that nobody saw coming uh, for the month of May. And again, I would go back to whether or not we're going to see uh, continuing jobless claims remain at a high level. Uh, Wall Street was very excited because two weeks ago we saw a dip in continuing claims. That came right back. So we've still got 21 and a half million Americans collecting unemployment insurance right now. That's a big number. Happens to be 13.1% of the workforce. If we continue to see this plateauing effect with continuing claims, then we're going to have a long period of joblessness. And to put that 10% in in perspective, in the post-war era, that's the highest the unemployment rate has ever been. So these are extraordinary times you're talking about if if you're saying we're going into the election and into the holiday season with double-digit unemployment. These things have never been seen. What you've also talked about one of the results of massive job losses is going to be a real cultural shift. What do you mean by that? I think that, that that people have been told their entire lives by their parents, it's part of what they learn when they open up their first savings account, you have to save for a rainy day. And it's really become kind of trite, cliche, because it's never, it's never had any meaning to it. Uh, people have always been able to get by and get through recessions in the modern era by using credit uh, to, to, to get them over the hump. The social safety net has always been there. Uh, but there are millions of Americans right now who no longer see it as being just a mantra that their parents said. They came into this, even 38% of those who who made 75,000 or more had no cash savings coming into this. So they have learned the hard way, show don't tell, that they really do have to have funds set aside for a rainy day. And I think that this is going to change the way many Americans approach spending and consumption and whether or not they necessarily need, you know, the newest iPhone and the car that has, they're going to stretch that car payment to make it $800, even even though they should really be spending $600 a month. I, I think that there is going to be a societal, cultural shift in the way we consume. And that's saying something because the U.S. economy is 70% consumption. Yeah. It's gonna it's gonna have a massive change in the thing. I also think we're gonna see banks tightening up credit policies too because they're gonna have less money because people have spent down. So I'm telling people right now as a business, you go get every line of credit you can, even maybe even pull it out and hold it, and right. you might be paying interest on it because I don't think you're gonna get it in another month. Yeah, we're seeing lending standards across the board. The Federal Reserve produces a senior loan officer survey on a quarterly basis. And we'd already seen for a few years tightening standards for commercial real estate. I I think bankers knew that that was an accident that was waiting to happen. But we're seeing it across the board, whether it be mortgages, commercial and industrial loans, credit cards, auto loans. So a lot of the things that have been driving the economy in recent years have been been debt driven in nature. And bankers, you are right. They're going to clamp down. Yeah. I got to ask you a political question. What do you think Trump's chances at re-election? Are they hinging on the state of the economy? I think they are. Um, I, I think that uh, I think that everything is going to be dependent upon whether or not 
you feel like you're in better or worse shape on election day. And I think it might be a nail biter. I think it might come down to that. We, we've never in, again, in post-war history, seen an unemployment rate increase to the extent that it has and have the incumbent win the presidency. It's never happened. It could happen. We're in strange, strange political times. I don't think anybody would dispute that. We're more divided as a country than we've ever been. Uh, so there is definitely a chance for him to get reelected without a doubt, but it would truly rewrite history. And I think some of it's going to come down to whether or not he can get further stimulus packages push through Congress while saying out of the other side of his mouth, bless him, that we have the best economy in the world. So that it's, it's are you going to be able to keep people and keep that safety net underneath them? Or come election day, are the moratoriums on rental evictions and is mortgage forbearance going to be an issue? Will Ford Motor Credit have stopped giving you grace on, on skipping your car loan? So a lot of it is, is this is this is going to be down to the wire presidential election. Well, let's take another break and we'll come back with a couple more questions as we wrap up all business with Jeffrey as it was C-Suite Radio. C-Suite Radio. And we are back. Thanks so much for joining us, listening in and watching as we're live casting right here on LinkedIn and Facebook as we bring you all business with Jeffrey as it right here on C-Suite Radio, of course, the world's largest business podcast network, C-Suite Radio. Don't forget, we got over 200 shows, adding a new one about every other day. We're growing like crazy. So it's so great to have our guest with us, Daniel Martino Booth. She's the CEO and chief strategist for Quill Intelligence. So our where do you think the U.S. stands globally right now? I was watching something or listening and some stuff about China and how much China's playing a part. They, you know, they don't care about being a geo side of it. They just care about being a financial giant and doing what they're doing. Are we more isolated now than ever before? I think that that is a very real risk. Uh, we, we have rolled over quite a few and offended quite a few of our allies. Uh, I would say that the major offsetting factor, though, is the coronavirus. And when you have 116 countries led by Australia demanding an independent inquiry into the origins of the virus from the World Health Organization, I would say that that I, if, if you want to call it irony, call it irony. But there has there has been uh, this backlash against China that could that could theoretically work in our favor. Uh, but whether or not China cares about that is, is, is another story. We play the short game. They play the very, very long game. It's the art of the deal here in the United States. It is the art of war in China. So much different philosophical approaches. And I think that they still have their eye on becoming the dominant economy in the world, whether or not that works out remains to be seen. But again, they're very strategic and long-term looking in how they position themselves. I like the reference to the book, Art of the Deal. That was nice. Nicely done there with that whole connection. That's a good one. That's that's pretty good. Do you what our last question I want to ask you, what else should we do to further stimulate the economy right now? So I think that we are in a period where we need to look at, I'm gonna sound political for a minute. I mean, if, yeah. if you drive a Fiat, there's a good chance that you could drive into a pothole and lose your whole car. So uh, I think that there's something to be said for looking at what FDR did. I don't like many of FDR's policies, but there's something to be said for 
for you know just bringing our infrastructure maybe into the current century. It's just a thought. And Daniel, I could agree. I got to jump in here. I could not agree more. I've actually have said this to the president. I've had a private conversation. I said, you're in construction. If you could do one thing, you should rebuild our roads and bridges, and we should put together one of the biggest government-backed programs in the world to do us and make us a first-world country in airports, in railroads, bridges, in, in you know, all kinds. Of, that, to me, that would be a game-changer. It would be a huge game changer. And we've also learned through this crisis that we don't have to leave our homes necessarily. So there is going to be a revolution in in, in, in healthcare, in so many different industries where they're going to learn to come to you because that's what we've grown accustomed to. It's been put in hyperspeed, but there will be a whole crop of young companies that come up out of this that learn how to deliver, you name it, fill in the blank, deliver it to us in a way that we don't necessarily necessarily could have conceived a decade ago. I'm going to ask you one more as a bonus question, because sure. I, I really want to get your opinion on it. And by the way, I want to have you back because this has just been fascinating. We're going to, we're, I got to have you back more regularly so we can talk about this stuff. I think it's good. You do a good job with it. Um, there, we have such a huge dependence on our production in China. You know, um, 34%, or I think it's our total, 17% around the world is produced there in China. And we've got some critical industries like pharmaceuticals that, you know, 90% of our pharmaceuticals are there. Do you think we're going to see in this backlash and in this, what has been a threat to our production and supply chain because of this pandemic, you know, you can say that, um, uh, bringing some of that back and manufacturing back to the States or in other places other than just China? Well, look, the way I feel about this is that this has been a slap in the face. We, we should not have a single healthcare worker in America who died because there was insufficient protective equipment for them. Period end. So if this does not stay with us for a very long time, remember, many people think that we've reopened the, the, the economy prematurely. If so, if, if there's if there's any benefit to having the coronavirus with us for longer, it's going to be that it keeps the emphasis on bringing these critical industries, if not back to the United States, at least closer to home. At last check, you know, Mexico is an ally of the United States, and it would benefit their economy and benefit our economy to keep those supply chains open and and and, and make it more uh, make it more economically doable same same situation with Canada but we absolutely without a doubt have to have certain industries increase their footprint here in the United States as a matter of national security and I don't say that lightly um, right. and, and 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 I think that this is it's an opportunity. The trade war was kind of a, an alarm bell going off in the background. And they said, well, maybe we'll move to Vietnam or so this, this brought, this is the trade war on steroids. And it is an, an unequivocal signal to American companies to figure it out, figure out how to produce a lot more closer to home, especially if it's something that China can actually hurt us. By having the by having us so reliant on imports from there, you know, I say prof, uh, people over profit. In this case, I think strategy over profit. I mean, it, sometimes the bottom line, you know, isn't that's not where you should dictate everything. It's about being prudent. Hey, Danielle, thanks for joining us. We appreciate you being here on All Business with Jeffrey Hazel. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely, likewise. 
the end of every show, I like to talk about what I learned. I tell you, she she threw it in there right toward the end when I started talking about Trump and thinking about the elections and also thinking about uh, how we produce our products and where we produce them. And she said, you know, we think about the art of the deal and China thinks about art of the war. See, as a CEO, you got to be one of the most strategic people in the room. As a C-suiter, you got to be one of the most strategic people in the room. You got to be thinking short term, but you got to be thinking the long game too. So don't forget that. You've got to be strategic. That's your job. And I know that we practice that every day right at the C-Suite Network. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. This has been Jeffrey Hazlett right here on All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett on C-Suite Radio. Don't forget, check out all of our other shows. We'd love to have you listening to more than just one. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network. The world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.